Hey, podcaster, we have made our way to the second half of John chapter 12, and that's actually the same text that I was asked to speak on at the Free Will Baptist National Convention this past summer in Cincinnati. And though the text is the same for both messages, the application in in each context was different. And so we have made this message, which is the message from Cincinnati available on our podcast, in addition to uh, our Sunday morning worship service message on John chapter 12. And so just kind of as a bonus episode, bonus feature, uh, we're giving you this optional kind of a secondary uh, version of my treatment of this text. And so I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. I count it a privilege and an honor uh, to share this stage with some quality Free Will Baptist men. I'm one of six speakers that you may have seen in your program. But every time I've looked at these pictures of all of us, we'll show you that on the screen, I've had that Sesame Street song going through my head, one of these things is not like the others. I felt a little bit out of place, and I'm sure that my picture in the program or in um, (laughs) one magazine has caught some of you off guard. One of the ways that I serve the the National Association is I serve on the Media Commission, and so I have some friends in the Media Commission who were a little tech-savvy, and so they were able to use the current social media craze of FaceApp to help me blend in a little bit so that I don't stand out quite so much. And uh, (laughs) That actually wasn't the filter I was thinking of, guys. I was thinking of, um, you know, doing something with my clothing. Could you fix that for me? Yeah, there we go. That's better. I know that I might not look like the typical Free Will Baptist speaker who gets to stand on this stage. But I am most definitely one of your Free Will Baptist sons, or perhaps grandsons. I've spent much of my life in the shade of trees that you planted. Attended Christian schools, belonged to Free Will Baptist churches that shaped me, that in spite of my rebellious years, in spite of my times of pushing away, you pulled me back, you embraced me, you loved me. Kevin mentioned my family, and we've been Free Will Baptists for several generations. But I'm here today because of their faithfulness and your investment. And so thank you, Free Will Baptists, for your investment in camps and Christian schools and churches and curriculum, like the Randall House flannel graph that I grew up on. I'm here today because of those investments. I'm one of your Free Will Baptist sons, and it's an honor to stand before you, preach to people who discipled me, loved on me. You know, the the difference between what you might have expected to see as tonight's speaker, the difference what you've come to have as the, the norm and me, is not that great. 
especially in comparison to the difference between what the people were expecting in John 12 when Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He's been fulfilling prophecies right and left. He's just recently raised Lazarus up. And there are Greeks, according to verse 20, that are in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they have heard all of this buzz, and they want to see Jesus. So they come to Philip in verse 21, and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip was a good Baptist, so he knew that before he could do anything, he had to form a committee. And so he goes and he gets Andrew, and together they take these Greeks to Jesus. And in verse 23 of John 12, Jesus responds to their request to see him. And so if you've got your Bible open to John 12, we can begin reading. Or if you want to switch over from the Facebook app to your Bible app, we'll read this together. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Man, that is so huge. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, he had been saying, The hour is coming. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. But in this moment, he says, The hour is here. In verse 31, he confirms that the time has come when he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. They're right. The time is now. They're excited. But then after each of these verses, Jesus says something that is unexpected. After verse 23, he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, that except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That's a little less exciting. That sours the mood just a little bit. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Then in verse 32, the follow-up to his other now statement, Jesus says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying the death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're confused. Who is the Son of Man? When I moved to Chandler, Indiana 14 years ago to pastor Faith Church, before that I'd always lived in big cities like Nashville and Virginia Beach. And so moving to a small town of 5,000 people in the Midwest brought about quite a culture shock. And one of the many things that I had to learn about Chandler is that they have a volunteer fire department. Volunteer Fire Department's been great. They have worked alongside of us on several events that we've done. But I remember the first time that I had to call on the Volunteer Fire Department. In Virginia Beach and Nashville, all the interactions I'd had with first responders, they showed up with 
lights on top of their vehicle and their name on the side. They wore uniforms and had badges. And the first volunteer fireman that showed up the first time we needed to call on them, he pulled up in a four-wheel drive pickup truck covered in mud, and he was in cut-off jean shorts and a tank top. He wasn't what I was expecting. But he immediately jumped in. He had the training. He knew what we needed, and he was a huge help. Here in John chapter 12, Jesus is telling the people that he is indeed the hero that they need, but he's not the one that they have been expecting. And they're so perplexed and confused because Jesus has spoken about this hour arriving, about him coming to this moment, but he's talking about dying. Verse 24, he says, unless a grain of corn, unless a grain of wheat is placed into the ground, it abideth alone, but if it die, it brings about a harvest. What he's saying is that unless I go into the ground, unless I am sacrificed, unless I die, I will not fulfill my purpose. The hour will be lost. In Indiana, it's been a really tough spring for our farmers. It has rained so much. The fields have stayed so wet. It's been difficult for them to get their crops planted. But whenever it has dried out, whenever it stopped raining, they've worked well into the night. They've turned on the lights on their planters and their combines because they know that if they don't get the seed planted, it will be wasted. The season will be lost. And what Jesus said is that for this purpose I have come, I must be like the seed that is planted. And when Jesus says in verse 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. It sounds positive to us because the idea of lifting something up, it's, it's encouraging. It's a fitting theme for a national convention to lift people up and encourage them. But what the people heard when Jesus said this would not have felt so positive because the phrase that Jesus uses was a common one for someone being lifted up on the cross. While you and I hear positive, they would have heard something very negative. Like you and I might hear if someone were to say, they need to give that guy the chair. They knew that he was speaking of crucifixion. That's the reason that John says in verse 33, this he said signifying what death he would die. The people ask, who is the Son of Man? Because Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man, but now he's talking about being executed. How can he endure forever and also be executed? The people are profoundly missing the point, as they often do in the Gospels, because this truth is so counterintuitive. What Jesus is telling them is that his exaltation will come through his humiliation. And the hour has come for him to be glorified because the hour has come for him to be crucified. Friend, you and I will miss the point of this passage if we fail to see that the way that Christ is lifted up is through the picking up of the cross. That his glorification comes through his crucifixion. That the hour he is glorified is the hour he is crucified. But when we recognize that, when we understand what the hour of his glorification is on the cross, it makes verse 31 ring with great gospel power. Look back at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world come. 
When we think of Judgment Day, we often think of something that's coming in the distance when Christ returns, something that awaits us once we die. But Jesus says, now is the judgment come. And friend, can I tell you something that is beautiful? Because of the gospel, judgment day is not coming for me. Because of the gospel, judgment day came 2,000 years before I was even born. My sin was placed upon Christ. My punishment was placed upon Him. And the judgment for my guilt, my shame, my sin was placed upon Him. Kevin mentioned that we do ministry at the Warwick County Jail. Something that's interesting about our judicial system is that when someone is found guilty, they will then await sentencing. Oftentimes they will await that sentencing in the county jail, but because they've spent so long in jail awaiting trial, if the punishment is lenient enough, they might get to sentencing and be free to go because the punishment has already been doled out while they wait. And what happened for us is that we were found guilty, but the punishment was already doled out upon Christ, and for that reason, we are free. Judgment day is not coming. Judgment day was then, in the hour of His crucifixion and His glorification. The judgment has already come. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, in verse 31, and then He says, now the prince of this world is cast out. My friend Daniel Webster is always trying to convince me that there is such a thing as a good snake. And I live by the motto that the only good snake is a dead snake. I've been terrified of snakes since I was a boy, and so I've gotten pretty decent at cutting the head of a snake off with a shovel. If you've never done that, I highly recommend it. But what happens after you cut the head off of a snake is he continues to act like he's alive for a moment. His nerves and his muscles keep firing. He wriggles around. And friend, I want you to know that it might feel like Satan is still at work, but lo, his fate is sealed. His doom is sure. Genesis chapter 3 told us God said He is sending a son of woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. And in that crushing, His heel would be bruised. All of this was leading up to the moment, not when Christ would be crowned, not when He would be glorified because He'd be lifted up as the victorious king or the victorious warrior, but rather it was in the cross when He crushes the head of the snake underneath His heel. And if that crucifixion is the bruising of his heel how gory must the crushing of the head of the snake be now is this judgment of this world come now is the prince of this world cast out this passage not only shows us how the glorification of Christ comes it shows us the call that Christ gives us in between Christ talking about being like a seed that is planted in, a, in the ground and being lifted up on the cross, we have these powerful and paradoxical verses in 25 and 26. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If any man serve me, him 
will my Father honor. This passage of Scripture is the call that Jesus is giving to his disciples that if they would see him, if they would see him glorified, they must hate their lives in this world to follow him. And it echoes calls that Jesus makes throughout the Gospels, where he calls us to leave our lives of sin behind, to leave our past behind, take up our cross, and follow him. One of these passages is in Matthew 16, where in 24 and 25, Jesus says to the disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. John 12 is all about Jesus' glorification through his sacrifice. It's a passage, it's a truth about him, but it's one that he desires to make true about us. It's one that he calls us to. This paradox of him being glorified through crucifixion, this paradox of multiplication through sacrifice is a life that he calls us to emulate, for us to follow him in. The way that Jesus shows up as our Savior is counterintuitive. It's not what people expected. And the life that Jesus calls us to is also counterintuitive because he calls us to gain our lives by losing them. He calls us to keep our lives by forsaking them. He calls us to live by dying. And when Christ went to the cross, he was not only making the way for us, he was showing us the way. I love people, but there is a particular group of people that I struggle to love with a Christ-like love. It's people who stand in the middle of a walkway or a hallway and block the path. Some of you have been doing it this week. In southern Indiana, we have the wonderful holiday world. It's a great amusement park. We've always taken our kids there every year, and this is the first year that my children are old enough that we no longer have to take the stroller. And I was excited about this year. No longer taking the stroller to Holiday World, no longer packing it in the car, no longer pushing it up the hills. But through the summer, I've realized that I miss the stroller. Because the stroller was great for cutting the path through the crowd. Everybody would step out of your way so that their foot or ankle didn't get run over. And when they made way, then you and the family could follow behind. What Jesus has done here is he has made a way for us to get to the Father. He's made a way for us to have that relationship. And he's also shown us the way that we should follow him. He's showing us the way that we should follow after him. That we should forsake the life of this world and follow him. And I preached on this text in the county jail in the rec room before the weight machine. I would then take the application to talking about leaving behind a life of sin. Perhaps the application in that moment would be addiction or immorality. And while that's a fitting application for tonight, I think that perhaps the most appropriate application for us is not about a substance, but rather about our status. It's not about our addictions, except for our addiction to our identity and our place. 
You see, we know that we're supposed to lift up the name of Jesus. We know that we are to lift up his name in praise, but we'd kind of like for our name to be elevated a little bit too. We'd like for people to speak the name of our team or our church and give us compliments. We want to lift the banner high in missions, but we just want to make sure that it's through our brand and our network and our group because we're addicted to our status. We don't clutch onto a bottle and we don't grasp for a needle, but we hold tightly onto our identity. We're desperate for it. Spurgeon, speaking on this passage of Scripture in 1883, he wrote words that I felt like he must have been talking about us today. Because Spurgeon said, certainly the Lord Jesus Christ will not lend himself to draw men to your sect or to mine. He will draw ever towards the truth and righteousness, but not dead forms or meaningless distinctions, nor to the memories of former wrongs or party victories. If the Lord should draw men to the cathedral or the tabernacle or the abbey or the chapel, it would be of little service to them unless in each case they found Him. The main thing that is wanted is that they be drawn to Himself. Christ has not led the way for us to draw men to our brand, to our churchianity, to our traditionalism, to our new brand of cool, to our new method. It's not about us, so let's stop making it about us. Let's leave behind our identity. Let's crucify that on the cross. In the same passage in Matthew 16, Jesus has just commended Peter because Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says to him, Peter, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God. Then Jesus begins to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the priests and be crucified. And that doesn't fit within Peter's plans. And so Peter pulls Jesus off over to the side and begins to tell him, these things cannot be. And in that moment, Peter is putting his preferences and his plans before the purpose and the work of Jesus. And Jesus responds to him by saying, get behind me, Satan. And I know that it would be counterproductive to alienate anyone who holds to our doctrine and has a passion for lifting up Jesus. But Jesus called one of his own disciples Satan because he put his plans and preferences before the purpose of God. And brother, if you would put your plans, your preferences before the mission of God, may I say to you affectionately, get out of the way. Because when our desires... And our wants come before the purposes of God. That is not the working of God. At best, it's the work of our flesh. At worst, it's the work of Satan. Let's put away our plans, our styles, our brands, our aspirations, our pride. Let's put it all aside for the mission and the purpose of God. Our ability to lift up Jesus will continue to be hampered by our death grip on our preferences and our bitternesses. And I know that many of you feel that you are noble, 
and your desperate efforts to hold on to the movement of your youth and to the nostalgia of the good old days, but you were simply fighting for an era for a period of time because you've come to identify with it, and you feel personally slighted when I slight a period of time because that's where you get your identity. I know others of you feel that what holds us back is our reluctance to enter the 20th century, much less the 21st century. I know you're passionate about your new method and your new cool music and your new model. So much so that when I challenge it, that you are offended because you have identified with it. Brothers and sisters, based on my understanding of Free Will Baptist history, our association was formed not to preserve the cultural identity of Baptists in this generation or some previous generation, but rather we were formed for the salvation of the world. It's for this reason that our covenant says, counting it our chief business to extend the influence of Christ into society. To this end, we labor for the promotion of educational and denominational enterprises, the support of missions, the success of Sunday schools, and evangelistic efforts. Why? For the salvation salvation of the world. We were not formed for the preservation of our identity. We were not formed for the extension of our influence into society, but rather we were formed for the expansion of Christ's influence, for the salvation of the world. That is what we are here to labor for, not anything else. Let us die to anything else. I know that you believe you're fighting the good fight. But the more you tighten your grip upon issues that do not matter, the more seed slips from our grasp. The crowds in Jesus' day had very different plans for his ministry and life. And those plans were shaped by the current political climate. They were looking for freedom from Roman rule. They were looking for a savior for their Jewish national pride. They were looking for someone to bring about a culture that was more suited to their days in the past or their more preferred future. But Jesus' purpose was greater than their ambitions and plans, and His purpose is greater than ours too. Friend, I would tell you that we do not have generational problems or cultural issues. Rather, we have a discipleship crisis. When Jesus called these men to follow him and leave everything else behind, he was preparing them for the great work that lay ahead. A great work where they would lay down their lives, where they would go and teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and pour their lives into these men and women so that they could teach them whatsoever Jesus had commanded them. The call of Jesus here to his disciples is a call to be and make disciples. And see, the call to lift up the cross is answered when we take up our own and follow Him. These men would begin a discipleship movement that continues today. Cultural moments come and go within a single generation, but discipleship movements move through the millennia. Big churches often grow fast and fade out completely, but discipleship movements continue to spread no matter what the culture does. Denominations may rise and fall, but discipleship movements multiply, and the power and influence of nations comes and goes, but discipleship movements spread without regard to kings or Caesars or popes. 
Methods change, but the mission to make disciples remains. And that is the harvest that Jesus was speaking of. If he would be planted, a great harvest of disciples would come. All the other things that we give ourselves to, they will fade away. And Jesus, speaking of himself, says that if I am not crucified, if I am not sacrificed, the harvest will not come. Friend, I want there to be a harvest. My friend Casey Carricker, he's my personal Barnabas. He's always encouraging me. And every time I get to hang out with Casey, he tells me of some new thing that God is doing in our midst. The last time I saw Casey, he told me about attending the funeral for Rachel Moy. We lost Rachel to cancer this past year. I didn't know Rachel, but I knew her husband, Chris. I'd met him just once, had a conversation with him briefly, and in that short span of time, it became obvious that Chris was passionate about discipleship, about making disciples, bringing people into relationship with Jesus, teaching them whatsoever he commanded them. Apparently, Rachel was also all about discipleship as well. Because at her funeral, several women stood up and testified of how Rachel had poured her life into theirs, had hard conversations with them about doing things that were culturally abnormal, giving up careers so that they could better disciple their family and their friends. And after these testimonies were finished, the host said that not everyone could share a testimony. So if you're here today at the funeral service, would you, and you were discipled by Rachel personally, would you just stand? Case had told me that he was sitting near the back and he was doing that typical pastor thing of always counting heads in every room that he's in. And 20 women stood that had been personally discipled. Then the host said, if you would remain standing, if you're here today and you were discipled by one of these women who just stood, would you stand? And the number swelled from 20 to 50. He said, if you would, remain standing. And if you're here and you have been discipled by one of these women who just stood, would you please stand? And the third generation of discipleship reached between 70 and 80 women. That's the harvest that we're called to. That's the harvest that we should be seeking. That's the harvest that's brought about if the seed is not wasted, but rather it is sacrificed by dying to self. That harvest came about not because Rachel lost her life in this world, but rather because she rejected it to live for the life that is in the next. And when we will do that and pour ourselves into others and teach them about Christ, that is a harvest that will continue generation after generation. You see, what's crazy is that when we try to preserve seed, it just ends up being wasted. But when we'll sacrifice, a harvest comes. Now, friends, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that this is easy. When we look honestly at what God has called us to do, it's difficult. It's hard. I'm only 36, but there are many days in ministry that I feel like that doctored photo that I showed you earlier. It's tough. And friend, I want you to know that in those hard moments where you feel like nobody is being drawn, 
in those hard moments when you're doing everything you can to bring about a discipleship culture. For those of you that are trying to bring about revitalization to a church, you're trying to lead a congregation through transition, you're trying to go to some new place and share the gospel. When it gets tough, please do not pray that God save you from those circumstances. But rather, follow the example that Jesus gives us in verse 27 and 28. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I pray? Father, save me from this hour, for this hour I came. What does he pray instead? Father, glorify thy name. Father, glorify thy name. Don't quit. Don't pray for easier circumstances. Don't pray that God saves you from the difficulty and the adversity of that hour. Rather, instead, pray that God glorifies His name. When it's Sunday morning and you get your fourth text message that a volunteer can't be there because their kids have a travel wiffle ball tournament, don't quit and don't pray that God saves you from those circumstances, but rather pray that in the midst of that, God would be glorified. For this hour you have gone. For this hour you raised support and went to language school. For this hour you studied, prepared, and moved across the country. For this hour you have come. Pray not that God eases your circumstances, but rather pray that God would be glorified in those circumstances. Do not pray for comfort but take comfort in what Jesus said. Jesus said, if any man serve me, let him follow me. You see, when Jesus calls us to this life of discipleship, this life of dying to self, of taking up our cross, he's not calling us to something that he hasn't done. He's calling us to follow him in the way that he has already made. Friend, take comfort in the fact that he goes before you. That when he faced his hour of adversity, when he sweat literal drops of blood, that he prayed that God's will would be done, and he embraced the cross, he goes before you. What does the next section of 26 say? And where I am, there shall my servant be also. Know that he goes before you, and know that he is with you. I love the National Association of Free Will Baptists because here I have found so many friends who've been an encouragement to me, who've been there to give me wise counsel and advice. And from people on every end of the spectrum, from Jim McComas to Jeff Goodman, I've got people who encourage me and pray for me and help me know the next step to take. But there are moments in the difficulty of ministry when a Sunday has not gone well, when I've counseled someone for hours and they walk out and decide to do what they were going to do anyway, when it's hard and nobody else knows, and not even my original gateway dudes are aware of what's happening in those moments, Jesus is with me. When we answer the call to follow Jesus, The reward is Jesus. And friend, let me encourage you, you don't need to try harder. You just need to keep following Him. You just need to stay close to Him. 
I think of John Patton who left Scotland to go and take the gospel to the island of Vanuatu. It's over a hundred years ago. He set sail. He gets there and within months of landing on Vanuatu, both his wife and his son die. One night, an angry mob, a drunken crowd that felt like the presence of a missionary was hindering their ability to practice the dark arts. They decide they're going to kill John Patton. He runs away into a forest as they fire muskets over his head. In the forest, he finds a tree and climbs up into that tree as through the night they comb the forest floor looking for him. And you would think that in the branches of that tree all night it would be so lonely. But what Patton says in his biography is, Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut, le chestnut leaves. He goes before you. He is with you. He honors you. The final phrase there, that verse is that Jesus tells us my Father will honor Him. I'm so thankful to be on this stage and to have this opportunity to preach on the cross to this group of people. But I know that in this moment, that there are men and women out there on the front lines and in the thick of it, that they'll never have the opportunity to stand here. They'll never be able to walk across this stage. They'll never be given a plaque. Not because the denomination doesn't want to honor them, we do, but it's, we're not capable of honoring everyone that we wish we could. The Father honors you. As you minister on the front lines in some obscure town, as you share the gospel in that rescue mission, as you visit a lady in the nursing home, as you minister to a couple that's on the verge of divorce, nobody may know, but the Father honors you. This past Thursday, I stood next to the casket of a dear friend. Robert Scales was 78 years old when I came to pastor Faith Church. He'd literally been a deacon at Faith Church for longer than I have been alive. Came to a church that Robert Helms had planted with your help and support, and he had established a good work there, and then they suffered through a split, and a few years later I came in and the transition went from a pastor in his 70s to a kid right out of Bible college at the age of 22. And Bob scales that deacon in ways that can't be seen, that won't be known, this side of glory, ministered to, loved, and cared for this young pastor. And Bob scales is unknown to you, but I know that last week when he crossed into glory, God said, well done, good and faithful servant. He honors you. He's with you. He goes before you. And he works alongside you. Jesus said in verse 32, And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He was lifted up. 
And we, Free Will Baptists, we take this verse at face value that since Christ died upon the cross, He offered this forgiveness, this grace to all mankind, and He is drawing all men unto Himself. And in that moment, it might have been hard for them to believe that God was going to be drawing Greeks and Romans and barbarians and Corinthians. Today, it might be harder for us to believe that God is drawing the addict or the drunk or the prostitute or the liberal or the homosexual or the adulterer, but He is drawing all of them. And He goes before us and He is with us and He honors. But most importantly, He works alongside of us. He is drawing all men unto Himself. There is no person in your community, in your city, in your neighborhood who the Lord does not desire to draw unto Himself. And when I stand in the rec room of the county jail or when I sit in an AA meeting, that gives me hope because there is nothing within me that has the power to bring about the needed transformation and to forgive sin. But the Son of Man who has been lifted up on the cross for our sins, He is drawing them unto Himself. A few years ago, my family, we bought a house. It was new to us, but it was very old. And it needed a lot of work. And every day off that I had to go over and work at that house, I would take my son, who at that time was just under the age of three. I would give him his little toy hammer, give him his little tykes drill, and he would work alongside of me. And even to this day, he'll talk about when dad and I fixed the house. Can I let you in on a little secret? Don't tell him. He didn't do anything. I mean, he, he vacuumed up some sawdust here and there. But really, mainly what he did is he made messes for me to clean up. When I think about the church that I get to pastor, the church that I get to build, the ministry that I get to do, I think it's probably a lot like that. I'm there with Jesus, and he's doing all the work, and I'm making messes that he has to clean up, but I get to be with him. And when I look back at that time when we remodeled that house, I have all of these wonderful memories of spending time with my son. And what Jesus called the disciples to is to leave behind the life of this world and follow him so that he could be lifted up. And that's the invitation that he gives us, friends. That's the invitation he gives us, brother and sister, to come with him so that he might be lifted up and he can draw all men unto himself. That's the invitation that's given to us. I hope you'll accept it. As we enter into a posture and spirit of prayer,